Welcome, welcome, America. I am Sweetie Sweetness or Cry. Uh, you can call me the one of those names or D if you'd like. You, my real name is Darylin. I'm named after my father. His name is Daryl, and uh, I love my name. But you can call me Sweet D. Uh, now time for the podcast, Cry, Let It All Out, dedicated to Tupac and Biggie, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Be on the lookout for other artists that we're going to do, like Bob Marley, uh, Luther Vandross, uh, Rita Franklin, uh so many more. Just be on the lookout for that. Cry, let it all out. A podcast dedicated to the legacy of Tupac and Biggie and the legacy of others. We're going to carry it on here on this podcast. So I got the book. Let's get into it. The Killing of Tupac Shakur. Um, Tupac Shakur was the greatest rapper that ever lived uh, none can rap like him, none do it like him, and, uh, uh, we shouldn't have lost him. Biggie, too, is the same as Tupac. Biggie was one of the other greatest rappers that ever lived, and, uh, they both were original, they both were great, they both were, listen to their music, please, uh, even if you're not in the 90s generation uh, when they came out, uh, if you're a, a younger generation or even an older generation, listen to the music so you'll know the greatest rappers that ever lived. We're on gangster rap and the record companies. Uh, let's begin. Hip-hop music is really a reaction to the failures and the fallacies of the so-called civil rights movement. A lot of these people say we can vote now, we can sit in the bus, in the restaurant, but we don't own the bus, we don't own the restaurant, so we say F it. That's why you see a lot of people, white or black, frustrated. White kids are alienated too. They identify with rap and the hip-hop culture. It is the most cutting-edge, most aggressive music out there. It's very rebellious. Historically, white youth have always identified with cultures that were rebellious. Tupac, to me, like Kurt Cobain, the grunge rocker who committed suicide, represented the bleak outlook on life that this generation, our generation, fails. Uh, I remember that from uh, the last podcast. So I'm going to skip over. Yep, we did rock, rock to the planet, rock and rappers delight. Okay. While the murders of Tupac and Biggie spurred record sales, the long-term effects aren't good for business. The big record, record companies and distributors are asking themselves whether the business should continue as usual. Yep, we did this too. Uh, okay, I'm going to go on. Okay, according to the federal grand jury indictment filed in Las Vegas in 1993, Shrick Knight was listed as the 34th defendant along with Crockett in a drug distribution ring in which cocaine was brought in from Los Angeles and sold in Las Vegas. We did that one too. Okay. Sorry, guys. I didn't... I'm sorry, guys. I didn't look at this before I came and get the point where... Um, 
where we are. We talked about them wanting to sell his car. All right, uh, Bill. We talked about the billing of night with the credit card. And perhaps the strangest turn of event, Chug was accused by a former accountant for Deathrow Records of assaulting him in the Wall Street Journal termed a horrifying encounter. On the morning of Saturday, October 12, 1996, Cooper's and librarian accountant Steve Cantrock told his boss that he had attended a meeting with Chick Knight the night before and claimed that Chick had assaulted him, forced him to his knees, and made him sign a trumped-up IOU, the news paper reported. In the IOU, Cantrock confessed that he had stolen $4.5 million from his client, Chick Knight. Oh, my God. The core statement he assured his shocked Cooper's associates, associates were false and absurd. The Wall Street Journal's Alex M. Friedman and Laurie P. Cohen wrote, Troubling questions soon emerged, and Cantrock eventually left the firm with this story in doubt. Cooper's declined to comment to the Wall Street Journal other than to say that it had severed ties with both accountant and client. Cooper's association with Death Row began in November 1992 when Cantrock landed the account with the record label, which had been looking for someone to manage the financial end of its business. Cantrock was given sole authority to write checks for the rap label. Mr. Knight had his roving entourage with huge spenders, even by Hollywood standards, the newspaper reported. Rather than ringing them in, Mr. Cantrock went with the flow. When the death row clan was on the road, Mr. Cantrock saw it saw to it that stretch limousines were lined up outside their hotels twenty four hours a day as Mr. Knight desired. The accountant signed off on the impulse purchases of Rolex watches, Lexus cars, yachts, and jewelry. One thing Cantrock wasn't able to accomplish, however, was organizing Death Row's financial affairs. The rap label was perpetually short of cash. Shouldn't have been. That's what I think. Shug told the Wall Street Journal through his attorney that he was in the dark about money problems and believed everything was fine. Chick began to realize there was a problem when Cantrock started to lose clients at Cooper's and Librarian. Chick began paying more attention and he quickly suspected that death row funds were missing. He confronted Cantrock for the first time on June 4, 1996, the newspaper reported, asking him about the missing money, including a refund of $25,000 for the down payment on a Las Vegas house Chick had decided not to purchase. Cantrock reportedly admitted taking the money. Chick told him, just stop stealing, pay me back, and get on the ball with putting the business in order. But by June 1996, Death Row's financial statement was already a shambles. Should claim he wasn't getting an accounting of the books from Cantrock and was still kept completely in the dark. So Should called a meeting at the San Fernando Valley home attended by several people, including his attorney, David Kenner. An IOU was written and signed by Cantrock. Those present in the room during the confrontation disputed Cantrock's claim that he signed it under duress. On February 7, 1997, Cooper issued a statement that it had asked for and received Cantrock's resignation for violating the firm's policy. 
Death Row Records hasn't tried to collect the $4.5 million it says it's owed, although Kenner has said he is contemplating a lawsuit against Cantrock and Coopers and Lyburn. Wow. Chapter 10, Rap Violence, Gang Violence. Since November 30, 1994, the day Tupac Shakur was shot in the lobby of Quad Studios in Manhattan, there have been five murders of people directly involved in the rap music business. Tupac, Randy Walker, Yafu Fula, Jake Robles, and Biggie Smalls. In addition, at least another dozen people known to be affiliated with the Bloods and Crips gangs have been wounded or killed in drive-by shootings. In most of the cases, homicide and gang detectives involved in the investigation say the assaults and murders aren't connected. People in the music industry think otherwise. Many people in the rap music industry are worried, wondering who's next. I remember we talked about this, but Snoop Doggy Dogg, a rapper for Death Row Records, postponed a music tour a week after Biggie Smalls was killed. Snoop delayed the Lollapalooza tour for a month, he said, out of respect for Biggie, but others say it was out of fear. Indeed, he rented an armored bulletproof vehicle said to be equipped with holes for weapons instead of riding the bus with the crew. Okay, let me go on here. Tupac had been killed, and six months later, Biggie was killed, and he doesn't want to be next, Jeff Bowen, booking and marketing director of Winston-Salem's North Carolina Lawrence Drove Veterans Memorial Coliseum, told the Associated Press. Bowen and Snoop were expected to begin his tour of the Dogfather East-West Fresh Fest 1997 World Tour sometime in April 1997. His revamped tour was to include a film tribute to Biggie and Tupac. Instead of opening in Winston-Salem, it opened May 1st in San Diego, closer to Snoop's L.A. base, and included the film tribute for his slain fellow rappers. Snoop is the only one left, Jay Howell, owner of C&J Concert Promotions, told a reporter. He will take it to the forefront and let people, let kids know that it's not all about violence. He's coming out with the band and talking about peace and unity, whether you're white, black, green, or yellow. Snoop Doggy Dog wasn't the only one who was scared off. Warren G's record company executive postponed a promotional tour for his new album, Take a Look Over Your Shoulder, because they feared for his safety. Havoc, a rapper with the band Mob Deep, told reporter Dave Bowder, Bowder that the violence can't be ignored. We're walking targets because we're rappers. We're entertainers. We gotta be careful, he said. Ice-T agreed, telling Bowder, this is the first time I ever felt unsafe. Luke, a rapper formerly with the band Two Life Crew, said, Many rappers were nervous. It's unsafe for Snoop to come to a concert in New York, for Nas to go to a concert in L.A., because there, aren't any, because there ain't nobody finding these people who are killing everybody. On June 28, 1997, Snoop Doggy Dogg attended the Evander Holyfield Mike Tyson rematch heavyweight bout at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Witnesses claim that shots rang out inside the casino. Metro denies it. An ensuing stampede injured several dozen people, but Snoop escaped unscathed. He was seen being guarded by the Nation of Islam security office, officers who are easily identified by their bow ties. 
On September 24, 1995, 10 months after Tupac was shot at Quad Studios, Jake Robles, a close friend of Suge and an employee of Death Row, was shot at an Atlanta nightclub. Robles died a week later. Shook blamed Puppy Combs and Bad Boy Entertainment's association for the shooting. Then, on November 30, 1995, a year to the day after the first attempt on Tupac's life, oh, Pac, a key witness to the shooting, was murdered. Randy Stretch Walker, a close friend of Tupac, was shot by three assailants during a high-speed chase in Queens. As with most of the other unrelated murder cases involving gangster rappers, Walker's killer or killers remain at large. After the April 1996 Soul Train Awards, someone pulled the gun with when associates with Bad Boy Entertainment and Death Row Records exchanged heated words in the parking lot. On July 3, 1996, Biggie Smalls, Little Caesar of Junior Mafia, Little Kim, and DJ Enough narrowly escaped a possible hit attempt, the Village Voice reported. Biggie had gone to Atlanta to represent Puppy Combs and Bad Boy Entertainment at a concert, but during his set, Tupac's crew began taunting Biggie and shouting, Tupac, Tupac, Tupac. Afterward, Biggie and his crew were followed to the hotel by people in a van they believed were trying to kill them. With the crew's Glock 9mm locked and cocked, one of Biggie's bodyguards told The Voice, Biggie's vehicle made a series of radical maneuvers leading to the interstate. The people following them apparently realized they'd been made, the guard said, then pulled in front of Biggie's vehicle. Biggie's crew thought they might have to shoot their way out of it. Face it, the bodyguard told The Voice. There wasn't no questions going to be asked. You knew it was on and what you had to do right then. The van and the truck continued shadowing them as they drove to the interstate and around the suburbs of Atlanta. Biggie, the bodyguard, said, wanted to find out who they were. Pull over and see what they want, he told the driver. They did it, and the truck and van sped off. Biggie and his entourage returned to the hotel without learning the identities of the people in the van. The next day, we found out that Tupac did come into town that night, and he stayed in the hotel across the street from where Biggie was staying, and he left that morning, the bodyguard told the voice. Then Tupac and Biggie were killed in drive-by shootings, and Yafu Fula was executed gangland style. The alleged killers of Yafu Fula have been arrested, but till now, the gunmen who killed Tupac, Biggie, Robles, and Walker have gotten away with murder. Mm. One thing police don't dispute is that all the shootings have been executed in gang-style, high-caliber drive-bys. But as for police claims that these murders were all unrelated. It's a difficult sell. It was common knowledge that Randy Walker was a witness in the November 30th, 1994 shooting of Tupac in Manhattan. Tupac and others said they believed Walker was murdered because of that and that his death was not random. Many in the music business feel the same way about Yafu Fula's death. He was a witness to Tupac's fatal shooting, so he too had to be executed to eliminate the possibility that he'd drop a diamond top. Then when Biggie Smalls was murdered in a scenario similar to Tupac's, talk that it was retaliation for Shukar, Shakur's shooting spread. 
Still, police from coast to coast have been hesitant to say any of the killings are related. At this point, it's anyone's guess as to whether the murder connections, if any, are real or perceived. Could they be, as the police have suggested, just gangbangers doing their thing and random shootings, coincidentally hitting witnesses to other murders? If the murders of Jake Robles, Randy Stretch Walker, Tupac Shakur, Yafu Fula, and Biggie Smalls are gang-related, the fatal results of the of a war between the Bloods and Crips, people in the gangster rap business say they won't be the last. In the past, gang members carried Saturday night specials. Today's black gangs are armed with sophisticated paramilitary weapons such as semiotic rap, semi-automatic rifles, Uzis, Mac-10 tight firearms, and 9mm and 45 caliber pistols. There are several stories about the origin of the Crips, but the most commonly accepted version is that the gang was started in the neighborhoods of West Los Angeles. The smaller neighborhood gangs consolidated and joined forces, forming the larger and more powerful Crips gang. An influential gang member named Raymond Washington started the Crips, which gradually built a reputation for being the strongest force among the black gangs of West L.A. Soon, other gangs started renaming themselves, incorporating the words Crips into their new names. Gangs such as the Main Street Crips, Kitchen Crips, Five Deuce Crips, and Rollin' Twenty Crips appeared. The development of the Bloods have been similar to that of the Crips. Black men in their late teens and early 20s living in rival neighborhoods in Compton formed the Bloods. In the early 70s, Sylvester Scott and Vincent Owens formed the Compton Pyrus, named for the West Pyrus Street in the city of Compton. The Compton Pyrus rose to power quickly and became extremely powerful as the recognition given to the Compton Pirates spread throughout L.A. County. Other Pirates gangs, which later changed their names to Bloods, were formed. Today, the Bloods are the most formidable rivals of the Crips. Numerically, the Bloods are outnumbered by the Crips, according to Compton and Los Angeles police. But what the Bloods lack in numbers, they make up for in violence. Sometime in the early 70s, police began to notice that the black gangs were dividing into Crips and Bloods. But though many of the gangs fall under the loose umbrella defined by the two best-known names, the smaller sets are still identified by the local streets, landmarks, parks, or neighborhoods which are incorporated into their names. The Donna Street Gang in North Las Vegas, for example, and the 18th Street Gang in Las Vegas. Today, Crips often have an have altercations among their own subsets or factions. Bloods, on the other hand, don't seem so inclined. In the Compton area, police have seen different Crips gangs unite to enhance their criminal enterprises. The Crips gangs began calling themselves CC Riders, Compton Crips Riders. They've spread to other western states, including Nevada. In the late 1980s, Southern California gang members began traveling into Las Vegas, one of the hottest spots in the nation, and to the gangs of Reading Mark. The gangs had a similar MO, takeover robberies of banks and casinos. Gang members considered casinos especially as an easy score, according to gang unit detectives. 
They were able to grab a large sum of money in just a couple of minutes. When casinos were hit, some of the money was later found by Los Angeles area police and gang sweeps. The disturbing things for officers, however, was that the takeover robberies seemed to serve as an initiation ritual for the new Los Angeles-based gang members. The police swooped in on the early perpetrators and slowed the practice down a bit, but they couldn't stop it completely. Crips gang members identify with the color blue and usually have a blue rag in their possession or wear some blue article of clothing, such as blue shoelaces, blue hat, blue hair rollers, blue canvas belts. They generally like their graffiti in blue, tagging their gang name on the walls and the hoods to mark their territorial boundaries and to publicly taunt their enemies or rivals. They use terms like Crip or BK or PK, which means blood killer or Piru killer. Crips refer to one another as cuz and use the letter C to replace the letter B in their conversations and writings, such as meet me at the cuss stop and that guy has crash calls. Pyrus and bloods identify with the color red, refer to one another as blood. A pyro usually carries a red rag and wears red clothing. Blood gangs write their graffiti in red and use the terms pyro and CK for Crips killer. Black gang members once eschewed tattoos, but that's changed. Now black gang members are tattooing themselves in the same manner as the traditional Hispanic gangs. In the black street gang, there was little structure in terms of hierarchy and rank. No one member is in charge of everyone. Some members have more influence than others, but the term leader is seldom used. A person's age, physical stature, arrest record, and behavioral background are the main factors that determine an individual's influence upon a gang. Gang members can respect influence and power within a particular gang by demonstrating their nerve and daring. Each gang's level of violence is determined by their dominant member's ability to incite the others. The dominant members are generally the most violent streetwise and knowledgeable on legal matters, which is especially useful in the event that their members are arrested. They might participate in a violent act or simply encourage others to commit it. They're usually well-liked and respected by their fellow gang members as well as by outsiders. Are black gangs becoming the new mob? Claims of disorganization notwithstanding, some cops think so. Police claim that black gangs and the mob now overlap the players from organized crime hiring gang members as their hitmen. I compare black gang members to the early days of the mob, said North Los Angeles Police Lieutenant Chris Lorotonda. They're doing the same exact thing. Then it was bootleg whiskey. Now it's drugs. But you have to make yourself look legitimate, even though your money may be coming from other illegal sources. Some of the gangs are expanding in just the narcotic sales and otherwise trying to legitimize 
themselves. We've seen them try to branch out into more legitimate type businesses. Even U.S. Senator Harry Reid, Democrat in Nevada, has likened Nevada street gang members to mobsters. Reid told the Judiciary Committee considering an anti-gang measure that we've got sophisticated crime syndicates turning our cities and towns into war zones. The basic difference between traditional organized crime versus street gangs usually comes down to access to political influence, said Lieutenant Bill Conger from Metro's gang unit. The street gangs aren't organized enough yet for, for that yet. Black street gangs are alive and well in Las Vegas. Although LA gangs influence them, they now stand alone. We have our own Crips and Bloods, said Conjure. There were some Los Angeles influence early on, but now Las Vegas is its own town, and we have our own gang problems. Chapter 10, Motives. There are several. According to police sources and talk on the street, the killing of Tupac and to an extent Biggie Smalls was a byproduct of one of the three pre-existing situations. One, the fierce competition between East Coast and West Coast music factions to sell records and dominate the gangster rap world. Two, Tupac Shakur's and Suge Knight's connections to the street gang The Bloods and its rivalry with the Crips. And three, a conspiracy of top record company executives to kill their own superstar rappers as a way of boosting sales. Hmm. Those are the motives? I don't know about that. Each of these three theories has also spawned related sub-theories, one relating to the third scenario is that Suge Knight was behind the deed, an accusation that Knight vehemently denies. Conversely, it has been suggested that Knight, not Tupac, was the intended victim. Still others who have followed the saga contend that it was nothing so sinister as a deep-rooted conspiracy, but more likely a case of personal retaliation stemming from the fight at the MGM, at the MGM or a semi-random act of violence, semi-random to the extent that the rival gang consideration would be involved if this were the case. One music industry insider said, the only scenario that fits is somebody thought they were doing Pac a favor by killing Biggie. I don't know who killed Tupac. I'm tired of the speculation. Tupac himself has been named in speculation that there really was no killing, that the whole thing was an elaborate dodge stage to fake his death, that there is discussed in the next chapter. Let's take a look. Um, America, I just want to say, Tupac, I'm so sad. I know you are too. Tupac thought he was going to hell. Tupac thought he was a bad person. He really, you know, Biggie um, did the song Suicidal Thoughts. Biggie did Ready to Die. You know, they um, were so hard on themselves. Um, I know Tupac didn't go to hell, and I know Biggie didn't go to hell. Um, I, you know, I wish they knew how great they were and didn't look so down on themselves as they did. You know, Tupac said, I've been wanting to see 
have a baby to see visions of myself that wasn't always shady. And Tupac wasn't shady. We see all these things now that they're gone, that they were great people and they did a great thing for the music industry and for rap. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Aretha Franklin sang 20 years ago, and that's what Sugar Knight, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls, and Puffy Combs all said was what they wanted today. Could the vicious and bloody rivalry between record companies be as simple as that? Some sources say that the rivalry has indeed been as simple as that. Respect as rappers and songwriters, as businessmen and as gangsters. The rumors about a feud are helpful but not true. Shook told Vibe before Tupac was killed. They get me additional respect. And this business is about getting the respect you deserve so you can get what you want. I don't worry about all the talk. Tupac also spoke to Vibe about being respected for his music while at the same time appearing to be willing to fight Shug's East Coast battles with him. My homeboy sure gave me the best advice that I could ever get from anybody, Shug said. When people ask Shug if he's beefing with Bad Boy and Puffy, he says, It's like me going to the playground to pick on little kids. That's like me being mad at my little brother because he's getting cash now. I'm not mad at that. I'm just mad at my little brother when he doesn't respect me. And when you don't respect me, I'm a spank that ass i don't give a f how rich you got on the block i'm your big brother that's my only point i feel as though he wrong i feel as though he wrong he got out of hand he got seduced by the power not because he's an evil person but because money is evil if it's not handled right why is it mandatory that i get respect tupac said to writer william shaw I know other people who are just as success successful as me, and you can call them a B. But if somebody calls me a B, I don't care if we're in court, we're going to fight. In his world, he told Shaw, all good ends, all the ends who change the world die in violence. I know. They don't die in regular ways. MFs come take their lives. Some observers maintain, however, that the bicoastal feud was more about money and women than personalities, that it was these tangible status symbols that led to the professional jealousies. Producer Jermaine Dupree, a friend of Puffy Combs, told Newsweek, This industry has a problem with people thinking there isn't enough room for everyone. It's the attitude that, if you got it, I can't have it, so I'm going to take it. That's why these deaths are happening. But of course, the rivalry motive is far more involved than that. Deep down, Tupac wondered if Biggie really had set him up to get robbed and shot at the Quad Studios in 1994, though he occasionally denied it. Tupac told San Francisco DJ Sway two months before he was killed, Strangers and in jail told me, Hell, you don't know who shot you? Biggie's homeboy shot you. Tupac really believes Biggie and them shot him. Veteran rapper Ice-T said in Vibe Magazine interview, If somebody thinks they shot him, it's on for life. 
When Tupac signed with Death Row, he began publicly attacking Biggie, even bragging that he had sex with Biggie's wife, Faith Evans. Then in 1996 at the Soul Train Awards in Los Angeles, Biggie's armed bodyguard got into a fight with an armed associate of Tupac backstage at the Shrine Auditorium. That's when the rivalry started being referred to as an East Coast-West Coast rap war. On the other hand, Tupac's cousin, Shaka Zulu, told the reporter, I don't think the food came out of Pac's camp. I think it came from people that are caught up in the hype of the East Coast, West Coast thing. For his part, Biggie and his friends vociferously denied it. Lance Un Riviera, Biggie's partner in the Brooklyn record label management company, Undias Recording, said in a published interview that the accusations were unfounded. He and Tupac didn't have no beef, Riviera told Rolling Stone magazine. They were real close friends. Tupac developed a hate for him. Biggie couldn't understand what it was, but he never responded. He said, I'm not going to feed into it. Biggie, in his last interview published in The Source the week after he died, again insisted the rift between him and Tupac was blown out of proportion, but no one has ever said whether Biggie had an alibi for either or both the Manhattan and the Las Vegas shootings of Tupac. In the Las Vegas shootings of Tupac, when asked, the police said they didn't know because Biggie was never a suspect. All right, we're going to close up the podcast now. Cry, let it all out. I want to thank you for listening. Remember, Tupac and Biggie are the greatest. We miss them very much. I miss John F. Kennedy, too. And with the affirmative action going on, it makes me think of John F. Kennedy and how back in the day, black people couldn't go to the same school and colleges as white people. It was segregated. And it makes me think of that, how John F. Kennedy changed that. And I thank him for that. Um, I want to say to Martin Luther King, um, listen to the I Have a Dream speech. Martin Luther King is one of the greatest orators that ever lived. And if you're looking for a great concert and a great performer to check out, check out Alicia Keys. I went and saw her at the TD Garden. She's great. She's fantastic. She's awesome. So go see an Alicia Keys concert. That's all it is. That's all I got for this week on Cry Let It All Out, a podcast that celebrates the legacy of Tupac and Biggie and others. See you next time, America. And remember, sweet D, sweetness, cry loves you very much. Bye.